Thank you. We have a couple more questions that we're going to do. We like to cover questions that people have, um, so we kind of sometimes put them together. Sometimes they're totally uh, connected. Sometimes they're totally disconnected. So a um, couple of different type questions today. I'm going to start out talking about uh, back several years ago, my family and I, we went to a couple different places. One was Mount Vernon, which is the original homestead of George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson as well. We went to his original homestead, which is the Monticello. So they are an amazing place to go visit. But when you go and see these places and you start to see some of the artifacts and the layouts and things of both George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, you start to see that these two particular men are not just a one-track person. You start to look at them in a different way. And what I didn't ever realize, of course, everybody knows George Washington was uh, first president of the United States, commander-in-chief, okay? A couple different titles there. But did you know that he was a farmer? And during when he was here serving his country, his farm almost went under and he almost lost the farm because it would fell apart without him to be there and lead and put things together the way that he needed to. Um, so when you went there, you looked at his gardens and he, he went through, he had his own little greenhouse and he went through and he did a lot of different work trying to create hybrids and things like that. That's what he really wanted to do. Uh, he just sort of got stuck doing presidents, uh, presidential things and commander-in-chief things because he needed to be. But he loved to do that. He loved gardening. And when we went to Thomas Jefferson's home, same thing. He was a gardener as well, and he loved to try different species. He had, I think it was little um, lemon trees and orange trees in his house. He potted them, took them in, took them out, and different things like that. There was an interesting way he was trying to cross things and work to, to cross and create different types of subspecies and things. He also was an inventor, which was really cool. Up the side of his fireplace, he created this uh, little dumbwaiter. And you would open the side of his fireplace and he would have wine to serve his guests that would go up and down in there and he would be able to take it in and out. Little tiny box and it would go up and down and he'd have a little bell to ring and somebody would fill it from below and he would take it up there for his guests so he wouldn't have to leave his guests to tell people what he wanted. Uh, he also created a clock which is in there and it it not only keeps the time, works off of a great big pendulum, um, swings back and forth, it, it holds the time, the, the hours and minutes, and also the days. And it's part of the whole house. It's built into the house and it moves up and down according to that pendulum that swings back and forth. An inventor of all sorts. He had a, a book reading thing that was, uh, he could read I think four or five books at once and he had it spinning so he could change and look back and forth on all these books. When you look at these gentlemen, he, of course, was also uh, president, the writer of the Declaration of Independence, a philosopher, and each of these people, we think of them maybe as one person, 
And they are that, but they hold several different titles. They hold all sorts of different titles. So the question that we had today was about Jesus. Here's one of the questions. About Jesus, he is called several different things. One is the son of David. One is the son of man. And the next is the son of God. So the question kind of was, well, how can he be all those things? Well, just like Thomas Jefferson is an inventor and the writer of the Declaration of Independence and a farmer and a president, commander-in-chief, he, has, he holds several titles. So does Jesus hold several titles. These are not by any means an exhaustive amount of Jesus' titles. There are many, many, many throughout the Bible, and I believe there are many more that we will probably find out in eternity when we're with him. All right? So we're going to look just quickly at a couple of these things for our first question. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter number 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. And this is talking to David, talking to David in chapter, uh, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, verse number 16 and 17. This is the prophet Nathan telling King David a promise from God. <clears throat> and thine house and thine kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. All right. So we're going to also skip down to verse number 26. And let thy name be magnified forever. This is back to God. The Lord of, of hosts is God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. So... A promise that God made to David started way, way back before. He was already working on it. But when David came along, he made the promise and he said, Your throne, your throne will be established forever. And when God says forever, he doesn't mean until I get tired of it. That's not God. God means Forever. There is no end. All right? So with humans, we know there is an end, right? There's an end to it. The, the earth someday, it says, will melt in a fervent heat and will be gone. But with God, there is no end. And so how does, does Jesus get the title of the son of David? Well, because David is from a tribe called Judah. Okay? He is a tribe of Judah, and a long way back, a few generations back, when the Israelites came into the land um, and were first taking over the land, they came in to fight the battle of Jericho. The spies came in, talked to a woman named Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute, but she believed in God. She believed the promises. God made. And so she hung the scarlet thread out her window, 
And that was the only family, anybody who was in there with her was the only group of people that were saved out of the entire city of Jericho. That woman became part of the lineage and married into the tribe of Judah. She was one of the beginning, and then it came down to a woman, uh, and God had carefully planned this all out, of course, a woman named Ruth. Ruth was also in Rahab's lineage, okay? And Ruth then married uh, Boaz in the book of Ruth, and that became David's great-grandmother, okay? So they had a, a son named Obed. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had David. So there was a plan all along for God to work through faithful people to create a line through the tribe of Judah, and along then after King David, of course, after David, Solomon takes the throne, then Solomon's son Rehoboam takes the throne, and the country falls apart, literally, in half. The tribe of Judah is only left with one king and one tribe, and all the other ten tribes, plus the tribe of Levi doesn't really count in this, but ten tribes split off. Judah is left alone, and it dwindles and dwindles and dwindles until it's gone, seemingly. But then one day, a young woman, again, another woman, named Mary, has a visit by an angel. Mary is also of that tribe of Judah, and out of that tribe of Judah, Jesus is born. Okay? And so... God's planned it all along, and he says, you are going to be the son of David. And how is David's throne going to last forever? The only way is to put Jesus on that throne, right? So Jesus, through the lineage from Rahab down to Ruth, through to David, okay? David is, of course, her, I think, great-grandson, and down through, all the way down, Mary and then Jesus, okay? Jesus is born, and he is born out of the tribe of Judah in the house and lineage of David. And it says that as you read the Christmas text, right? Uh, I think in Luke chapter 2, you'd read that Christmas text where he was of the house and she was of the house and lineage of David, all right? And so was uh, Joseph as well. So... He is raised by these two out of Judah, and he thus takes the, the appropriate title of a son of David. That's how I can have the son of Eric, because I was the son of Eric, right? And if I was still in Norway, I would have that name. If we passed down the traditional ways, I would get my father's name, and I would be Levi Erickson. Okay, I would not have the name of Olson. My great-grandfather came in, and his father's name was Ola, and so we are the son of Ola, who we pass down through generations, okay? So that's how he gets to be the son of David. Now, talking a little bit about Mary, let's skip along to Isaiah as we look at the next title. These are kind of mixed together. Isaiah, chapter number 7. Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14. 
and therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. All right, so we have that virgin that we know is Mary. So Jesus is born of a woman, a human woman, right? It's the only kind I know, right? She's a human, and thus he gets the title of the Son of Man. He was born out of mankind, okay? He was born out of mankind. Interestingly enough, in the same verse, it says we will call his name, she will call his name, Emmanuel. And that means God with us. So now he is God and human and the son of David. All of those things at one. None of them contradict each other. They all fulfill the promises of God. Okay? We're going to skip ahead one more just to, just to make sure we nail it down. Luke chapter 1, as we look at that birth and a little bit more explanation of actually what happens, which is a mystery, but read the words for yourself and you see what God did. Now, the only way I know, of course I said, he is born of a human. As far as I know, is if you're born a human and you live a human and you die a human, you're human, right? You go through all the things that any human goes through, being born, living, and dying, and all a bunch of tough stuff in between, okay? And Christ did all those things as a human, and thus the title of human is his, okay, to claim. But we have this little bit of different thing going on in Luke chapter 1, verse number 34 and 35, the angel comes down to Mary, and this is what he says. <clears throat> and then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Okay, how am I going to have this son of God? And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Okay? So, yes, he's going to be born as a human. No, it's never been done before and never done again that the Holy Spirit overshadows her and she conceives and that little baby is born within inside of her. Okay? And grows with inside of her like every other human baby ever. And then he's born and lives his life and dies like every other human baby. But he is God. And that is a mystery. I'm not going to tell you I know how it happens. I have no idea. God says I'm going to do it and that's it. I don't know how he made the world except he said I'm doing it. And he did. Okay? So... Jesus has all three titles. He holds all three titles of Son of David, the Son of Man, and the Son of God all at once because that's what he says, and that's what he's, that's what he's done all along. All right, so next question. Let's move on to the next question. We're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians for the next question. 
So in 2020, everybody's favorite year, um, we had our pandemic. And within my family, my kids were all sent home from school. Four kids at home to virtually learn, which I think is actually what happened. They almost learned something. <laughs> and let me tell you what. When you put four kids in there who all have to log on to computers, and I was home for a little bit of time uh, also during that time, during the first very confusing part of it, each one of them had their own computer. We were all sharing an internet, which was terrible. It didn't work anyways. But So everybody in six different computers were trying to log on all at once. And most of the time, things worked okay at best. And then they were all supposed to get on at different times, just so the teachers could see them online, so they could teach some sort of lesson so they could give them some sort of homework so they could work online and do things. And I'm not saying you can't learn online. But what I am saying is there were many, many frustrating times with it. Literally, it was chaos in our house every day. My wife knew this right off the bat. She's also trying to log in for her classroom to keep her kids going virtually, and we're trying to keep all of our kids learning and thinking, we got to teach them how to read, we got to teach them how to do math, we got to teach them how to do all this sort of stuff, four different ones at different ages and different time frames and different things. It was literally just chaos. Harder and harder every day. But my wife came and says, after about day three, she says, we're making a schedule, and this is how it's going to go. That's the teacher part, right? So every day, everybody had their schedule. Times they got up, times they did things, times they were to be on their computers, times they could do other things. We had one little guy who was in kindergarten who, if you didn't watch every moment, and he turned his computer on, and it sort of sat and spun and thought about what it was going to do. And he sat and he stared at it for about as long as a a kindergartner can stare at a screen and and be enthralled with it. And all of a sudden, he's outside playing. you got to come back. you got to go finish the math. you got to finish the reading. we got to read these books. we got to do this stuff. He come back and sit there for about two more minutes, and he'd wait till everybody's busy doing something else. He's outside. He's gone. Just waiting, just waiting to do it. During that chaos, the only way to live was to create some rules in our house. That was the only way we could do it. Just too many people going too many different places, and it was confusing, and no one was going to learn a thing if we didn't do it. So we came up with some rules. We came up with some thoughts. We kind of put everything together and made it happen. All right. So that's what this is about. This question is not about the pandemic. This question is about a verse in 1 Corinthians, a couple verses, chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. <clears throat> this is verse number 34 and 35. I'm going to read them first. Here we go. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, 
But they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husband at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. There you go. How are you feeling? Your hair up on the ends of its neck? <laughs> Somebody had to ask this question. So, here I am, right? <laughs> and now you've got to say, what is he going to say to that? Right? Well, I read it, but I only read those two verses. So please understand that first. I did that on purpose. Okay? Just to see if I could get a little bit of attention, and I did. Lots of little thoughts and little looks, and I'm sure people are, what is this? I didn't see this before. Let's look very carefully at what this says. Let's go back. First of all, never read anything in your Bible without context. Begin with that. You want to get your dander up, go ahead and pick a little verse and a little part of it out and, and read and dwell on that for a while. You'll get your dander up, go ahead. But I think you really need to go back and look at what's really happening to begin with, all right? Verse number 26 I'm going to give you a thought of what's really happening in verse number 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? Let all things be done unto edifying. The Corinthian church services when Paul wrote this letter, was like the first three days in my house of the pandemic. It was chaos. Everybody said and did whatever they wanted. And no one learned a thing. Okay? That's where Paul is writing this letter. And that's where he starts and says, everybody's trying to get up and do something in the service. Jump up, reach out, shout something out, get their, their opinion across. So let's go back to what we need to think about this. He says, I want to limit anything because our point is not, our point is not to get our opinion out. That is not the point of church. Church is meant to learn. Church is meant to worship. That's why we come here and come here together. And so in the Corinthian church, when Paul taught them things, and then all of a sudden all the personalities started meshing and exploding and doing the things that they do when you put people together in a group, Everybody had their opinion. Everybody was shouting out. Everybody was doing things. Then they all wanted to be heard. And Paul says, you can't run a service that way. No one will ever learn anything. I don't care who you are. No one will ever learn anything. Now, what really is happening? Let's go and read that, those verses again. In particular, verse number 35, that one that made our hair stand on our neck. 
And if they will learn anything, okay, this is they want to learn something, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, this is where he is saying, this is something to be aware of. There is nothing more distracting when you have a group of people and you have 14 side conversations going on when someone has prepared to do something. If you've ever stood up in front of somebody and everybody's talking to the next person over and talking to the next person over, it is very difficult. And it's not just difficult for the person who's standing up in front trying to teach something, who's put time and prepared into things. It's difficult for the person behind you and around you and all the things. So the idea is this. Create some order in what happens. We do it in our church all the time. It's what people have come to be used to. We do it because we start off and we sing a certain number of songs. And I watch, because that's part of my job, time. Where are we? I know I have a goal of what I'm shooting for as far as a time when the sermon should start. And that's why sometimes I cut things short. Because I'm trying to create order because there is some flexibility in our service. There's a time for prayer requests. There's a time to do a lot of different things. There's a time to worship, and there's a time to listen. The sermon is what length it is, okay? And I know roughly in my head where he's going to be. Time frame. Because we're trying to create order for everybody. Now, if we got to the end of a Sunday school class and we just said, all right, let's all open it up for questions. How many of you would not be happy because their dinner is burning in their oven, right? A few minutes, 10, 15 minutes over, I hear about it every time. Oh, you were over. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But if you open it up to just whatever anybody's thinking. And that's why we do things. We give times for questions because we say, let's respect what people are doing. Let's respect their time. Let's respect things that are happening outside. Let's create some order and let's try to learn. I think it's working pretty well, this learning in this church, because it's pretty ordered. Not that you can't be flexible in some things, but there has to be a purpose behind. Now, there are times we have different uh, communion services where you get to stand up and we encourage you to tell people what God's been doing for you, right? And we encourage you, put your questions in the back. We'll answer them. We'll put them together in an organized fashion when we're ready to answer them so that we're prepared. I don't want to just tell you things off the cuff because that's not as much as you can learn. If I need to learn a little more, rather than just give you an answer, I might need to dig in and find better answers. So being prepared gives you the best uh, quality of learning out of that. Shouting out and, and doing things creates a little bit of disorder in these things, and it ends up being like my kids. And so when it says... When you want to ask something, and it's calling out the women in that one. 
Now, apparently, I'm guessing from the context of it, he called out the women because there was an issue. Either they were shouting out or there was a hundred side conversations going on at once and it was not creating a way that they could all learn, the group could learn. So instead of, I want my way and I want to learn now, he said, why don't you wait and ask your questions later? Think about it. It's good to bring the questions home. It's great to think about it through the week. That's what we want you to do. But don't just do it to create disorder in the service. All right? So <clears throat> that is the point of that text. Along with that comes that little question that everybody says, well, are you saying that women can't speak in church? No, it's not what I'm saying at all. That's not even what that text says. That's not in the context. There was problems in that church, and he was trying to create order, and so he gave everybody. If you read the text before, you will find when you have tongues, do it this way. And if you can't interpret those tongues, then shut your mouth. That's what he told them. And don't do 50 of them. Okay? He gave them rules and says, just keep it orderly. Lots of services run different ways. But order is an important thing because everybody likes to know what's coming next. People tear out the things, put them in their, in their hymns so they know which exactly one to get to. I mean, they, everybody likes order, right? People like to know what's coming. That's why we give them a bulletin. Prepare in their mind. Think about these things, okay, so that you know. So, what about women leaders? Because that's really, I think, part of what burns a little in the question. It never excludes women in leadership capacities. That's not what it's talking about. Should I give you examples? Deborah, Ruth, Naomi, Esther, Bathsheba, Abigail, Jael, Queen of Sheba, Dorcas, women without, without the oil and the meal, the women that made the resting spot for Elisha, Priscilla, Mary Magdalene. Should I can go on? Because there are lots of women in the Bible that have taken important roles. We talk about them along with all the other stories in the Bible. <clears throat> they all had various different levels that they were called to do. Things that God called them to do. And behind that answer has got to be this. Whatever you personally are called to do, that's what you need to be concerned with. What you are personally called. If God is calling you to do something and you're not doing it, beware. Get yourself right and do it. I don't care if you want to be the president of the United States or some great leader. If God has not called you to do it, don't do it because you won't have success. But if God has called you to do it, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, old or young, it makes no difference. If God has called you to do it, get yourself there. Those are the questions we should be asking when we come to church. Not that I get my opinion out, much more what am I personally called to go do? Who should I be speaking to when we hear about giving the, the gospel out to those around us from the sermon? Who do I have to go and talk to this week in my life? 
Who has God been saying, He's, that person's right there. He or she is right next to you. You have an opportunity that no one else has. Speak to that person. Tell them about me. Show them who I am. Are you listening and ready to do it? That's what coming to church is about. All right? So as we look and as we do that, regardless, man, woman, young, old, makes no difference. Whatever you do have done in your life uh, or are going to do in your life, if God wants you to be somewhere, make sure you're there. Be asking that question every time you come to church. What God do you have for me? Be concerned about that. Because those are the things that each of us, me included, will answer for. God says, I want you there. Don't think that any one little task that God put in front of you, one little person that he had you to talk to, is less important than any other big job that someone else may have. It is, in God's eyes, it is obedience or not. So where does God want you to be? What does God want you to do? That's the question. So that's where originally the, the text came from uh, on, uh, in 1 Corinthians and why, because they were having issues. So let's focus on where God wants us to be. Thank you very much. Have a good day.